Blog Talk Radio. This program has been made possible by Weatherby Asset Management. The views and opinions expressed are those of the guests. Weatherby Asset Management is dedicated to providing exceptional wealth management services by forming partnerships built on trust, understanding, and thoughtful advice. For more than 20 years, they've been offering objective perspective, personalized planning, and sophisticated investment management to individual investors and families, as well as pension plans, foundations, and endowments. Contact them at www.weatherby.com. Weatherby Asset Management, located in San Francisco and New York City. Finally, a global program specifically for wealthy, philanthropic women who are humble, gracious leaders. Sylvia Global's host, Gil Sylvia, invites you to join her in these conversations with First Ladies of Nations households, business, and communities. Trustworthy, live conversations with women from around the globe provides a place for your voice to connect with women of integrity, passion, and purpose. Now, here's your host, Gail Sylvia. Good morning. Thank you so much for joining us here today. We have a very um, special guest with us. Her name is Janet Banshoff. She is the founder and the president of the Global Justice Center. She is internationally recognized for her human rights and constitutional law expertise. She established a landmark legal precedence in the U.S. Supreme Court and international forums. Janet, thank you so much for being here today. How are you? Great, and thank you for having me. This is a wonderful program. Thank you so much. You know, I was introduced to you through, um, I was getting emails last week due to One Billion Rising and the involvement of the Global Justice Center in standing in solidarity with V-Day to end violence against women. Why was this so important to you and the work that you do at the Global Justice Center? Well, it's essential to us, and I think the fact that uh, women all around the world were standing up on that day shows that if women can work together in this global world, we can really get the power that we're entitled to and that will shape this world and give us peace and security that we don't have now. Uh, The Global Justice Center has a very special role to play. We are lawyers, international law experts, and we want to use all those international laws on the books to bring them right to women on the ground so that they, next time they rise up, they'll be rising up to take their oaths of office in parliaments and in judiciaries and as ambassadors and heads of the military. Explain to us what it means to rise up and shatter the culture of rape and how, you know, the the legal... Um, arenas that you work in in order to shatter that culture of rape? Well, we're very strategic about what we do, and so I'll give you some concrete examples. First of all, we all know that when rape is used as a weapon of war, there's impunity. It becomes the culture of the conflict. It becomes a, a weapon of genocide. It's very effective. It's cheap, it destroys communities, and it can accomplish genocide. So it is the weapon most used against women in the world today in armed conflicts. And we also know that when the conflicts end, the rapes continue. There are now more rapes 
uh, in the Sierra Leone than there were during conflict, or at least the same number. It hasn't changed. So there's a whole culture there, and that has to be broken. So we look for strategic ways to break that culture of rape, and those, in, in, you know, those ways are to kind of look back and see that, well, our current project, that women get their rights during conflict, and uh, that when they get their rights, the, the power switches off. And let me give you an example. Everyone calls rape a weapon of war. It's used during war. It accomplishes military purposes, and under every definition of weapon, it is a weapon. I mean, starvation is considered an unlawful weapon by, you know, the laws of war, the Geneva Conventions, herbicides use. But the truth is that women have less protection under the laws of war than cultural objects or plants in the ground from herbicide. And one of our major projects here is to say, look, under the laws of war, there are these certain definitions that make a weapon illegal. And rape falls under that. And no one disputes us legally. So why aren't states being held accountable for using an unlawful weapon, which is a separate crime than the rape itself? And so we believe that if rape is treated like a weapon, then women should get reparations immediately, not just from perpetrators and having to go through trials, but countries like Burma and the DRC should be made to put millions of dollars into a trust fund because they're using the unlawful weapon of rape. And that money should go to women on the ground who've been raped without having to prove a criminal trial. That's one example of empowering women by switching the culture. All of a sudden, states will be called rape-using states, just like states are being called nuclear capacity states. Um, our other part of this is that in some conflicts, commanders are ordering soldiers who are HIV-infected to deliberately rape enemy women in order to transmit the HIV virus. Well, even the, the, I mean, not even, but the U.S. Army manual and every other manual lists biological weapons, and HIV is one of them. And it says if you use HIV during conflict by any means, it's biological weapons use, and yet we don't have any prosecutions for that. I mean, if a rebel force put HIV in a blood supply, it would be a cry of, you know, biological weapons use, immediately sanction the state, you know, armed intervention or put in peacekeeping troops. But because it's women that are being infected with a biological weapon, nobody enforces those laws. So these are the kinds of projects that we're doing and we're getting, slowly getting some support. We've got women's political parties, the labor parties in 149 countries have agreed that rape should be treated like a weapon of war when it's used like one. Um, women who are raped in armed conflict uh, go to a humanitarian medical center like the, run by the Red Cross, and they don't get abortions. They're raped again or they're tortured again. Tor you know, women who are impregnated by deliberate rapes when they go to get help are not given abortions in most armed conflicts of this world. And that kills them because forcing a pregnancy on a teenager and on a woman who's been completely beat up by multiple gang rapes and is very bad health condition, that is a very unhealthy pregnancy and it's terrible to force childbirth. So those are the kinds of legal issues that we think by focusing on the rights of women in conflict, we can switch it around to making them not seem like victims but are, 
of rape, but are true victims of war crimes that they're going to get money for. How does the Global Justice Center's um, Geneva Initiative come into play? You know, well, our, yes. Go ahead. Well, we we call it the Geneva Initiative, and the, the other word for it, Gail, is we call it our August 12th campaign. And our August 12th campaign is named after the anniversary of the Geneva Conventions. And we want to put women um, who are supposed to be under the Geneva Conventions back into the Geneva Conventions. Because right now, women victims of armed conflict and girls uh, do not get their rights under the Geneva Conventions. And if those are the most kind of accepted laws in the world and women don't get their rights out of them, how can they expect to get their rights under CEDAW or a local human rights law or a violence against women law? We feel like we have to start with the Geneva Conventions and say, this is our bottom line. Let's start here. How large is your team? It's very small. I mean, we'd love to be larger. Um, we have about uh, four lawyers, and we have law students. We have some volunteers. We have a lawyer who works at the UN and with our EU work, um, so that it's we're sort of like a, a think tank and an activist law firm, and we believe that what we're trying to do with our work is to redefine justice, and redefine equality, and redefine democracy, and we believe that a country that votes and women run for office but doesn't have you know, at least 40 or 50 percent women in office can't be seen as a democracy. I mean, it's not a democracy when you have, you know, 10 percent women have the power. Uh, we have to look at democracy in different ways in today's world. And we also believe you have to define equality. Most constitutions say that they protect equal rights of women, but they don't define it. And we define equality, and we say equality is not just in being able to run for things or have opportunities, but there must be equality in power. Uh, when new countries start, you see they get a new constitution, they get new presidents, they get new legislatures, but they, and they, get new, they have the same old judges. So one of our projects is to say, look, if women want their rights enforced, we have to see that half the judges are women. Um, we also, you could say our mantra is sort of like power, not pity. Um, so our, our strategic kind of force is that we look at um, trying to use international law to increase women's access to power, like having a quota in a new constitution for half judges be women. We also feel like... Um, Access to justice is another form of power, and that's why rape must be treated as a weapon, which it is, and women will have the power then to hold states responsible for unlawful weapons use rather than just people putting the blame on an errant commander or a rebel force out of whack. You know, it'll be a real holding states responsible really works on weapons deterrence. And women haven't benefited from that deterrence. Um, I think the other part which I've alluded to is redefining justice. And we believe that justice is not just that women who are victimized get their rights. We think that women need to be 
that part of justice is having women in the justice system, and part of justice is equality in power. So that's what distinguishes us from, I think, a lot of women's rights groups or human rights groups, because we have a very central philosophy that at the center of human rights law has to be genuine equality of women. What kind of markers are you able to, do you have in place to do, to assess your effectiveness? Well, I'll give you an example, Gail. On our August 12th campaign, one of our major um, pushes here is the fact that the United States government puts a no-abortion ban on every single disbursement of United States foreign aid. And that means that the recipient with U.S. money can't provide any abortions or even discuss abortions. And this this U.S. ban goes on uh, all humanitarian aid organizations. It goes on the U.N. It goes on the Red Cross. And it's the major reason why women are being denied abortions when they go to a humanitarian medical facility in the Sudan or DRC. And we're trying to get President Obama to issue an executive order to lift the ban as to women raped in war because they have rights to medical care under the Geneva Convention that are non-derogable. And non-derogable is a fancy legal term meaning that no other law can stand in the place. And our markers are that so far we've gotten over 3,000 groups globally to write President Obama. We've gotten the um, United Kingdom to come out in support of the fact that women have absolute rights under the Geneva Conventions, like all other victims of war, to the care they need, including abortions, and to express concern about the U.S. policy. We have gotten um, the country of Norway to directly contact the United States government and say it cannot keep this ban on war victims, that you know, children and women raped in armed conflict must have their rights to get an abortion. Uh, many of these are life-saving abortions. Many of these women are torture victims, so that you know, not providing them an abortion is like furthering the torture. We also have gotten legal groups from around the world to support our position, not only to write President Obama, but to pressure their own governments to segregate out their humanitarian aid from that of the United States. And these include like the German Women's Lawyers Association, the Paris Bar Association, the New York City Bar Association, and so forth. Um, one of our major partners is the European Women's Lobby, which covers 2,500 um, organizations in 33 countries. So we're really getting a global group behind this, and of course, having President Obama lift this ban, which actually President Bush put in place. It's an old law, but President Bush really tightened up the law on rape victims in conflict, and so the president has the... Um, authority to list this in 30 seconds if you wanted to, and it's just what he keeps telling us, you make me do it. So I hope all your listeners make him do it. Why Why did President Bush tighten up this law? Well, 
I think for two reasons. First of all, it's called the Helms Amendment, and there always has been a ban on abortion put on foreign aid since 1973. But gradually, every year, Congress would um, put that ban on more and more foreign aid pots of money. You know, it used to just go on family planning money. So I think it got very complicated to know what, what money had that um, restriction on it and what money didn't. So the first kind of step was that all of a sudden the ban on abortion or on speaking about abortion is put now on all state and foreign appropriations by the United States government, which is $52 billion a year, have this abortion restriction on it. Um, and then secondly, the original law allowed, if you, if the administration chose, to use that money for abortions for rape victims or for the life of the woman. And President Bush in June 2008 took out those um, exceptions by an administrative order, which means that it, they could go back with an administrative order by President Obama without going to Congress. And I think, you know, he took it out because actually, you know, he had a very anti-abortion agenda. It was legal for him to take it out because they were there just as options. And he thought he could take it out, take them out, and get away with it. And he did. I mean, I don't think until we started this campaign that a lot of people in the Obama administration even knew these restrictions existed and even understood that the United States could be held responsible for the endless suffering and some deaths of women and girls who are raped to death in armed conflict or who are injured in armed conflict. Um, Do you have, in the DRC, one half of the girls who become pregnant are under age 18, so that shows you, I mean, pregnant through rape. It shows you that this is really about children as well as women. Are there... Are there numbers that you can share with our audience in terms of the the impact of you know the the importance of of change in this area the number of women that this and girls that this affects or has affected and continues to affect well at any one point in time, Gail, there are about twenty five armed conflicts going on around the world um in which the Geneva Conventions applies, you know, they should be getting complete medical care as victims of war. And the United States government uh, puts money into all of those countries and so effectively can infect the pot of money going for medical care for girls and women raped in war in all current armed conflicts. Um, the United States government has this ban on the International Red Cross. Now, once you've been able to control the International Red Cross, you pretty much control medical care and armed conflict around the world because they set the standards. The United States government um, pays about 21% of the Red Cross's annual billion-dollar budget. So the Red Cross is not eager to defy the United States. Now, one thing that organizations can do that get money from the United States is to put that money in a separate bank account and say, okay, we're going to use our money from Norway and use that for abortions for women raped in the Congo. But no, no group does that except for the World Health Organization, which does separate out its U.S. money so it can have integrity with the rest of its money. 
But again, 25 conflicts any given day around the world, are we talking about, you know, 100,000 women and girls that are needing support and help and healing that they're currently being denied? Are we talking about, a you know, a, a million? Just so our, our listeners have some type right. of... Well- Let's just take about um, 800,000 people were killed in four months in the genocide in Rwanda, and I think there were about a half million rapes, and many women there were raped to death. So actually, you know, rape and war is such a problem, we're looking at not just survivors. You know, we're looking at, that's why we want it to be a weapon. So... Out of those survivors, some people estimate 17 to 20 percent got pregnant. Now, the other thing you should know is that young girls are taken as sex slaves by rebel armies and by government armies. Those are the ones who tend to get pregnant because they're raped repeatedly. They're in, you know, taken away. Sometimes they even have two children or die in the bush trying to give birth. So we can. You know, another statistic is it's most likely for those um, girls. Now, in Rwanda, people know there are over 5,000 children born of rape, the rape babies that are scorned and shunned and ostracized. So that's another statistic. Um, There were over 25,000 rape babies born from the war in Bangladesh in 1971 when rape was used as a weapon of war. you know, I think examining the outcome of rape babies is only one part of the big problem because obviously a lot of women commit suicide or they die from an illegal abortion or they, you know, can't handle childbirth and abortion, childbirth and pregnancy and die from related causes that are exacerbated by the pregnancy. So I, I can't put any money, uh, any exact statistics on this, but I would say probably 20 percent of women raped in armed conflict and you know it was estimated that 73 percent of the women in Sierra Leone were had some form of sexual violence inflicted on them during the conflict and you know I would say maybe 20 percent of the total they do get pregnant. How did you come in uh, upon this work? What drew you to this area this area of law and why is this you know how did you, you know, what was the path that brought you where you are today? Well, Gail, I'm I'm very old. <laughs> when I graduated from Harvard Law School, I wanted to be, you know, a constitutional lawyer. And I worked for the American Civil Liberties Union. And I later formed the Center for Reproductive Rights. And so the first part of my career was really spending arguing cases in court, trying cases in court, going to the United States Supreme Court, on issues of constitutional law. But I think just as I grew up, so did the kind of global law field. And, you know, we're now a world where a problem uh, that we have here of sexism and, you know, few women in government is something that is universal. But it also opened up new opportunities. You know, we now have opportunities to have a billion women rising everywhere. We now have the International Criminal Court, which covers, you know, the world, not just, you know, The Hague. And we now have uh, technology, and we also have a strong women's movement. 
Uh, we have a lot of laws that sort of sit on the books, but they're there for us to use. So I think my forming the Global Justice Center was in response to the fact that this was the time to not just talk about women's rights and not just write laws about women's rights, but to actually enforce them and try to also enforce them in ways that got women, give women power, not pity. What has been your defining moment of, you know, that says that the work that you're doing is effective? Has there Was there something that, or are there multiple moments in your career path that say, you know, this I am making a difference? Well, let me share something with you. Um, I worked with Iraqi women leaders um, and the judges in Iraq who were picked to do the special war crimes, crime, crimes tribunals of yeah. the Saddam crimes. And that was just a world-changing experience for me because, you know, I saw that because so many of the judges were male, it was critical that these Iraqi women leaders came to every training. And the judges were very receptive to helping the victims because they'd suffered from Saddam and they weren't going to prosecute rape, but we got them to prosecute for rape using uh, the international definition and to give women privacy and reparations. So we got the judges in Iraq to say that rape is torture and genocide, and they did convictions for rape, giving women reparations, uh, using international law for the very first time in the Mideast. And I think it was... two moments that were very defining was that they gave women more privacy, more honor than the women even had in the international tribunals in Rwanda. Mm. And I think the second part was that the State Department, who I don't work for, you know, this is purely private, uh, brought the judges to Washington. And I arranged for them to visit with um, uh, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg of our Supreme Court. And I was standing with the chief of the court and the two women judges on the court, of course, whom I insisted go on this trip, and Justice Ginsburg, and she was explaining to the chief judge, Arif, of the Iraqi Tribunal Court, how pleased she was that they had gone out of their way to find crimes against women were crimes against humanity. And all the judges were so proud, everybody was beaming, And I just had this shooting feeling in my heart, like, this is what I'm here for. This is like a moment of my life. Iraqi judges, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, rape is a war crime. You know, what more could a woman want? Yeah, right. (laughs) That was it. You know, the the U.K. parliamentarian, Baroness Kinok, uh, supports your work and has been... um, has been quoted, um, you know, that over the many years of work that they that you've been doing with the Global Justice Center and your August 12th campaign. Um, what other countries are you getting favorable responses, or are you informing and finding are shifting their thoughts and their legal practices in the direction that you're working so diligently to see these shifts occur? Well, first of all, I want to comment that, and I think it's very relevant for your audience, that Baroness Kinnock is from the Labour Party, which is not now in power in the U.K. It's the Conservatives and the Liberal Democrats who have the power. Mm -hmm. And the very first support 
for the August 12th campaign came from the conservative women who adamantly believe this is under the Geneva Conventions and something should be done about it. So I think that just shows you how powerful women can be. We got conservative party support right down the line. You know, I, I kind of expected the labor support, but I think that's an important aspect. Now, I've already talked about Norway. Um, we're also having some conversations with Sweden and the Netherlands. And I think it's very important that what we're trying to do is work through the EU because that has, that's of course a union of countries that are the most sympathetic to issues of international law and issues of women. And I think a great achievement there was on in March um, l last year, about a year ago, uh, the European Parliament passed a resolution on that included um, a clause that said European donor countries should segregate out their money from the United States government in order to ensure that women raped in armed conflict had the rape, had rape covered uh, for abortions as medically necessary procedures when they were you know, under the Geneva Convention. So we actually got the European Parliament to vote on this, and immediately after the vote, two vice presidents of the European Parliament wrote to President Obama and said, you know, what you're doing is violating the Geneva Conventions. Please issue an executive order to stop this. Another one of those defining moments as well. Please. Absolutely. And I didn't even know this was happening. Wow. You know, I didn't know about the letter to President Obama from the European Parliament. And what was the White House response? Well, why don't you call them? Okay. And ask for an interview. Okay. Because we haven't heard anything. We do know that, that there, we have a lot of support in the administration. And certainly, I do know that over 80% of Americans support that girls and women raped in armed conflict should not have to bear the child of their rapist. Well, this, 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 this is a question uh, that Americans, and I think everyone, but I know that Americans overwhelmingly support that the president should issue an executive order and that... Um, it doesn't matter that it's money because we're paying the money anyway, that no no torture victim should have to bear the child of her torturer. Will you join us in that conversation? Oh, I'd love to. Okay, we'd love to have you back. Janet Benshoff, thank you so much for being here from the Global Justice Center. Um, we appreciate your all of the work that you're doing because you are one woman who is making a change in in the lives of many women, and your mantra, power, not pity, is one that we embrace. Again, give us instructions on what our listeners can do to support other women and the work of the Global Justice Center. Well, just go to our website, and certainly we want your support in writing the president. We, of course, need your donations. And I think, Gail, we need people like you and your program to really get the word out because... Um, it's only through united actions that we make changes. That That's the only way it can happen. It's the only way it ever has happened. So thank you very much. 
We'll look forward to having you back again soon. I'll be in touch with you in order to pursue next steps so that we can partner and support the work that you do on behalf of women and girls around the world. Again, Janet Binshoff, President and Founder of the Global Justice Center, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you. You've been listening to Sylvia Global with your host, Gail Sylvia. Become a subscriber to Sylvia Global for unique listener opportunities. Follow on Twitter and like them on Facebook. For more information, go to www.sylviaglobal.com. That's Sylvia, S-Y-L-V-I-A, Global, G-L-O-B-A-L.com. 